if someone were to ask you, what is your greatest need right now? I'm guessing you would say a whole host of things. And no doubt those are real needs. But I believe that we all share the singular greatest need. And that is to be awestruck by the cross. Maybe you have never been awestruck by the cross. You've prayed the sinner's prayer, perhaps. But it's never really stormed your heart. Or maybe you really have, but the truth is you're living as an orphan. Because the cross seems so humdrum when you've got so many other concerns in your life. And so, for that reason, I want us to pray together that in his mercy, God would open our eyes individually and collectively to the mystery of the cross. Amen? Father, this is our prayer as we just sung, that we would be overwhelmed by the work of Christ in behalf of sinners like us. Lord, we become calcified, nonchalant, and we wonder why we're so eaten up by so many different things, because our eyes are on temporal, vain, fleeting things, and not the Lord of glory. So Lord, I have worked hard on this message, but Lord, if I don't even go with what I've planned, so long as I say is, according to your word, by your spirit, I, I, I just yield myself right now afresh. I yield myself. And I ask that everyone here would yield themselves to you. That in your mercy, you allow us to blot out everything that would try to distract us, good things, bad things, things in between. And may you allow us to search the mystery of his wounds as we abide together this morning in the shadow of the cross. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in an Easter series going through a few of the servant songs from the book of Isaiah. The name of the series is Love Songs, The Love of God and the Suffering Servant. There are specifically four suffering songs, 49, actually 42, 49, 50, we looked at last week, and 54, 53, which actually starts in 52. We're going to dive right in. We're going to look at the fourth servant song under this title, this theme, this topic, the suffering servant's crucifixion. There is no more plainer prediction and clear description of the suffering and glory of Jesus Christ in all the Old Testament, if not the Bible, than what you find in what we read responsibly earlier, Isaiah 53. In fact, Isaiah 53 so clearly points to the Messiah that early Jewish commentators to a person all agreed that it appointed to a, a singular person to the Messiah. It was only after the Christian movement grew that Jewish commentators began to say, no, 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 that, that doesn't really point to a person because it so clearly pointed to Jesus of Nazareth, and they wanted to reject that. So they began to say, no, Isaiah 53, it's really symbolic, you know. It's really a metaphor. It's really an allegory. That, that was the way they would explain it. And among Christians, and I'm using the word Christian now in a Matthew 7, very generic kind of way, because there are many people who confess Christ who are actually on the broad way to destruction, and few actually are in Christ. So among people who have confessed Christ, it's only those who deny the reality that the cross was about a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Only they deny that Isaiah 53 is about a person, because it so clearly is about a judgment-delivering sacrifice. I was listening to a debate between James White and uh, this so-called theologian. It wasn't much of a debate. Uh, I think his name's Brandon Roberts or something like that this week, arguing the biblical position on sexuality against deviant, deviant sexuality. And he goes on to say, as a progressive Christian, quote, air quotes, 
that Isaiah 53 isn't actually talking about Jesus Christ. This tell you by way of introduction, verse 3, it does not say a metaphor of sorrows. It says the man of sorrows, right? It's talking about an individual. Verse 10, it does not say a symbol shall make itself a guilt offering. Rather, his soul shall make itself a guilt offering. I have a commentary from 1853, oldest book I have. I, I just love looking at the book and wondering all the people who read this commentary, 170 years old. It's called The Sufferings and Glory of Jesus Christ. The first half of the book is uh, exposition of Psalm 18, several hundred pages, pointing to Christ, Psalm 18, you know. And then the second half is an exposition of the fourth servant song, Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53. And he has this title for the second half of that, ex that book. He calls, it, he calls Isaiah 53, the passion of Jesus Christ, according to the gospel of Isaiah. That is it right there. Jesus quoted this fourth servant song specifically. The apostles quoted this fourth servant song. It's in the epistles, some 15 books of the New Testament Directly quote Isaiah 53. I wish I had a month alone just to dive into the depths of Isaiah 53, even to read that old commentary. I wish I had 15 weeks, one week for each of these 15 verses in the fourth servant song. But what, what I want to do this morning is I want to approach it this way. I want to preach this as if it was the first time you were ever exposed to Isaiah 53. For two reasons. One, it, it might be. And number two, sometimes we just need to return to ancient landmarks so that our hearts are freshly stirred. The other thing I want to do in preaching this fourth servant song is to, with a view, and it'll be God's mercy that it causes you to feel this, but this is my goal, with a view to the love of God that made all of this possible. 1 John 4.10 says this, herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. And so this morning, the servant's crucifixion. Five movements through it. I at first tried to alliterate it. I was trying too hard. So just five different headings as we walk this text. I want you to no notice number one. An appalling observation that is made, an appalling observation. This is found in the last three verses of Isaiah 52, the first three verses of the fourth servant song. Now, this opening section kind of provides an overview for the entire fourth servant song. He says in verse 13 that his servant shall act wisely. What does that mean? that he will be successful in the mission to which God sent him into the world, to redeem a people for his name. It goes on to say in verse 13 of Isaiah 52 that he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Again, that's Philippians 2 stuff right there. God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name. Then verse, the last verse, verse 15 says, he shall sprinkle many nations. What do you think that has to do with? The, the, a priest would, would, would sprinkle people, right? It's an imagery of cleansing, of forgiveness, of salvation. But I want to dial in under this first point in a polling observation at the verse in the middle, the ones I just referenced. Verse 14. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and as foreign beyond that of the children of men. This is prophetically pointing to what Jesus would go through. And if you had seen him at a certain point in his ministry, i.e. that Holy Week, the end of the Holy Week, as he's going to the cross, the question you would not ask is, is, is this the servant of the Lord? You wouldn't have asked that question. You would not even have asked the question, well, what man is this? But according to Isaiah 52 and verse 14, the question you would have asked is, what is that? Do you, you understand what he's saying here? Marred beyond human semblance, it says. Marred beyond human resemblance. The point is clear. 
that Jesus Christ would be so brutally beaten, so, so disfigured, that he would appear as an inhuman mass of torn flesh. Last week I referenced very quickly the scourging. I delay on it just for a moment or two. There's no way I can fully describe it, but it's mentioned in Matthew 27. Pilate ordered Jesus to be scourged. There would be a long piece of leather, a long strap, if you will. At the end of that long strap of leather, it would be uh, embedded, woven in, broken shards of bone, primitive metal, jagged rock and stone. In fact, there wasn't just nine straps like that. One, there were nine attached to a wood handle, maybe about this long. It was called a cat of nine tails. And when someone was ordered to be lashed by the cat of nine tails, they would, they would put him in, in a device that would kind of string them up so their midsection was taut like um, the, the, a drum top, taut. And when the person inflicting the cat of nine tails on the victim would stand, they, it would they would swing it like a baseball bat. And those hooks would grab into the midsection so tightly, again, there's hooks, that with the same force he whipped the victim, he would have to yank it back out. Sometimes it is said it would actually grab part of a rib, just laying somebody completely wide open. According to law, you could not whip somebody who had passed out. You can imagine people very quickly passing out from the pain, the searing pain. And so they would have a bucket of, of brine or salt water nearby. So when the victim went under, they could splash him to wake him back up and then lawfully give them another whip, the cat of nine tails. Now, that's enough elaboration. That enough would be enough to make Isaiah 52, 14 happen. Marred beyond human semblance. But then we add the crown of thorns. Weren't little bitty thorns, but that crown, they say, out of Israel was a very long, those thorns. And if you've ever been cut above the eye, you bleed like a stuck pig, right? Like just a lot of blood vessels there. Rivets of flesh torn in his brow, just blood. He just looked crimson all over. And then there's the mocking and the beating and the slapping and the spitting and all the rest. Now, John tells us after all that happened, Jesus carried his cross, probably the pat of bloom, Patabellum, which was like a cross beam, to Golgotha, to the place of execution. But you know what Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that happened at some point in his trek to Golgotha? You know what they tell us? That the soldiers forced Simon of Cyrene to carry that cross beam. A lot, a lot of conjecture about why they had him do that. Some surmise that the Lord of glory, the God-man Jesus Christ, was so reduced from the scourging and beating and pummeling that he was staggering, yea, falling under the weight of the cross with which he would soon bear away the sins of the world. Put that in your theological pipe and smoke that. Like, he was crumbling under the weight of the cross from which he would soon carry the sins of the world. He was a man, right? God, but still man. Some surmise, oh no, that, the text doesn't say that specifically, and some surmise that the Roman soldiers, seeing that Jesus was so reduced through the beating and flogging and scourging and all the rest, fearing that he would die ahead of the cross and wanting to make him an open shame before the Jewish and Roman world, had this man of North Africa, Simon the Cyrene, carry the cross so that he could at least make it to Golgotha and then there give up his life. Either way, I, I don't know. The point is clear, is it not? He was horrifically, brutally treated and appearing. It was beyond semblance of a human being, at least from some vantage point. And then you have the cross itself. The cross was a form of execution that was designed to maximize pain and lengthen life. So that as one commentator put it, to the person hanging on the cross, death was a delicious thought. I just want this to end. It was so painful. 
Now, what was behind Jesus going through all of that? What was behind that? What was behind that for you? What was behind that? Why did he do that? Why did he go through that? Why? Why did he go through that? Don't overthink this one because he loves you. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Isaac Watts has that great hymn, When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross. You have this line. Just, just close your eyes for a second. We, we sung about it. You just heard me preach a little bit about it. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? He was appalling if you would have observed him. And that was out of his love for you. Now, two quick things before I go on to the second point. I tie in last week with this week. He went through six trials. All of them a mockery of justice. The crucifixion of Jesus, you need to know this, was a colossal miscarriage of justice. And yet, at the same time, all according to God's divine plan. And that's important to remember on Palm Sunday. Did Jesus reveal his deity through his earthly life? Yes or no? You know, yes. He, he, he disclosed himself in veiled kind of ways, right? Like he would do a miracle, but then he would say, don't tell anybody, right? Was Jesus fearing death? No. Jesus was aware that there was a divine timetable. He always talked about the hour to come. And on Palm Sunday, he steps forward, and he's making it clear, if you just look at all the history behind it, that he is saying, I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And now he goes public and boom, things go downhill quickly. But I don't know what you know about Jesus Christ, but I want you to know that he said this about the cross. He said, I have, no one takes my life from me, he says in John 10, 18. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again, which means there's theological truth then behind the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in history. Pilate even said to him, when he wouldn't answer any of his questions, Come on, won't you say something? Don't you know that I have power to crucify you or power to release you? And I can imagine Jesus very quietly saying, Pilate, you would have no power were it not given to you from above. What's unfolding here is part of, God, part of God's eternal plan to save his people. The other thing I want to say is, I spent a few minutes on, on the physical suffering, right? And the, to the degree to which we get that, it, it, it makes you wince, Right? It's terrible, it's brutal, it's horrific. But I really believe the scripture teaches this, and this chapter specifically teaches this, that as bad as his physical suffering was, compared to his spiritual suffering, it's but a drop of water, a minuscule drop of water compared to the infinite billions of water splattered across all the oceans and ponds and lakes and rivers of the world. And that really is where Isaiah 53 is going to take us. We'll see that shortly. But first of all, there is an appalling observation. Second of all, in the first three verses of Isaiah 53, I want us to note a rather unremarkable appearance. Unremarkable. Let me read verse 2. But he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Through the natural eye, Jesus was quite unimpressive. Quite ordinary. Quite unremarkable. As one commentator said, he wasn't exactly the starting quarterback on the varsity high school football team. He was very unremarkable. One of the first things he does, he tells a bunch of parables. It's in John. And what do people say? What do they say about when he teaches these parables? What do they say about him? You said it. What do they say? Boom. 
Yeah, isn't this the son of Joseph? In other words, isn't this the carpenter's son for crying out loud? Who do you think you are teaching us like that? Even his own family did not understand who he was. They did not believe it, says. They, some, later, but they didn't believe it. He did a bunch of miracles in John 12. Did that cause him to, because people say, oh, we need to sign, signs and wonders and people will believe. When Jesus did signs and wonders, it says in John 12 that they did not believe. And he actually quotes, who hath believed our report. He quotes Isaiah 53 in there. How about the woman at the well? She didn't even understand who Jesus was. Jesus says, woman, the, the hour is coming, they worship God, will do so in spirit and truth, not on a mountain. And she says, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us about this. And he says, you're looking at him. She didn't recognize him. Even John the Baptist, who quite literally will put his neck out and lose his head for the Lord, has his doubts later. Remember that? And he sends some people to say, are you really the Messiah? I'm just trying to make this point. Jesus had no S on his chest when he walked in his earthly ministry. He didn't have some halo on his head. It wasn't lightning or uh, flash bulbs going across uh, Main Street as the paparazzi were following. There was none of that. In fact, verse 3 says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteem him not. Now here's the crazy thing. Stay with me. Some Christians, again using the word loosely, Say the reason the world rejects Jesus Christ is because Christians do such a bad job repping him. And thus we need to rebrand him, redress him. Now, do we as Christians do a pretty bad job of repping Jesus sometimes? Yes, forget even the world in our own house sometimes, right? We have to walk in faith and repentance. But I'm here to tell you, that's not why the world rejects Jesus Christ. But that's what people say, so we need to rebrand him. One campaign said not that long ago. We need to redress them. Think about all the ways people try to dress Jesus up. Oh, oh, you care about the environment? But Jesus does too. Oh, you care about education? Well, Jesus does too. Oh, you care about racism? Well, Jesus does too. Oh, you care about conservative values? But Jesus does too. Now, it's not that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about some of these things. The Bible does, right? But why did Jesus say he came? Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. How? By giving his life a ransom for many. Or Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So why did Jesus say he came? To save people. We ought not to be embarrassed about that. See, when you dress up Jesus, all you get is dressed up pagans, pseudo-converts, and quasi-Christians. So back up to verse 1, he asks this rhetorical question, who has believed what he has heard from us? Answer, how many people have believed? Not many. If we did a, a mile circle around this building... And we said, how many people have believed the report of the gospel? The answer would be, at the end of the day, savingly, not many. See, the thing, this is very humbling to us. and We don't like it in our sovereignty, but we're not sovereign. You can't see Jesus merely through human eyes. In other words, you can't discover the full purpose of Christ by mere human observation. There must be divine revelation given to you. Second line, verse 1. And he, and to whom has the arm, the saving arm of the Lord been revealed? Must be revealed. That's why we preach the word. Because it's through the word God reveals his son. And we pray for the spirit then to open the eyes of the person. This, this, listen, at Corinth they're wanting to bring all kinds of things in to make Jesus dressed up. For the Jews require a sign, it says in 1 Corinthians 1.22, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But Paul says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, 
and to the Greeks, folly or foolishness. But to those of us who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He had a rather unremarkable appearance. How do you see him? Well, that moves us on to a third point. The first two were about Jesus. This third one is about all of us. I put it this way, undeniable guilt. Here we move to verses 4 through 6, really the heart of the heart of Isaiah 53. All of us, the human race, is undeniably guilty in sin. Romans 5.12 tells us how this all played out. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, who's that referring to? Adam, a real person in the past, the first human being, Adam and Eve. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all that have sinned. Graveyards exist, not because death is natural, but because it's unnatural. The wages of sin, the paycheck for sin, is death. We are sinners by nature, and we're sinners by choice. You've heard us say stuff like you never had to give your kid a class on, hey, Johnny, this is how you lie, right? Because there's a bentness towards sins, that we, towards sinful stuff we all share by natural birth in a fallen world. And you would think with every headline, we would become all the more convinced, yeah, there really was a real thing called the fall that infected all of us with sin. You would think that, right? You would think that. Instead, we continue to deny the reality of living in a sin-stricken world. I mean... Think about the school massacre. What Monday was it? The blood is not even dry in the carpet of the school. And pundits are saying, you know why this happened? Because of a specific political party. Or if we just had more gun control. Or I'll tell you, it's Christians' fault. And by the way, it's coming for us Christians just by believing what the Bible has to say about anything in life. Or it was mental illness. Then the locker room at Powerhouse, I think Tuesday, and one of the guys said, you know why this happened? And he mentions here, the, the Republican Party. Like, no, it happened because the evil is real. There really was a fall. There's sin in the world. They looked at me like, what are you talking about? And some people have given themselves over to the one who lies in darkness. Oh, forget about headlines. Can I talk about our hearts for a second? Because forget about the U.S. Let me just talk about us. Because that's what Isaiah is doing. Because people can easily say, oh, yeah, the world is very sinful. But what about your stinking heart and my stinking heart? Verse 6, he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to whose way? His or her own way, not God's way, our way. And then he spells out four words in this text. The word transgression three times, iniquity three times, guilt one time, and sin one time. Let's look at the word transgression. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgression. What is a transgression? A transgression is stepping over a boundary. And one thing we are good at is the fallen human race is stepping over the boundary of God's law. Hey, man, you can decide what's right and wrong for you, and I'll decide what's right and wrong for me. There's nothing but rank defiance against the Creator. And then you have the word twisting or iniquity. Our text says he was crushed for our iniquities. That refers to the twisted heart behind the stepping over, the heart behind the action. Have you ever noticed how quickly something ugly flies out of your mouth, something cutting, and like, where did that come from? Right there, from the twisted heart. And then he uses the word um, sin, which has reference to missing the mark, as if you're an archer and you're, you're trying to shoot a bullseye, and every time you miss it, we, we just miss it, because sin infects all of us. All right, let, me ask, let me ask you a few questions here. And I want you to be honest. Just be honest. Why is it so hard 
to live holy and to live unselfishly. Why? Or let me ask you this. Is it hard for you? Or does that come, does that come easy to anybody here? Why is it so hard to live holy and, and, and to live unselfishly? Another question. Why do we so easily remember things that are bad and so easily forget things that are good, right? Why are we so quick to criticize and complain, even against God when things don't go right, but well, we don't really do much praise when things are going right, but playing the wrong stuff. You, you, you see what I'm saying? Or how about this? Do you have any moments in your life that, man, you wish you could get a do-over? Like, you have any regrets? Remember Tyson biting Holyfield's Holy, uh, ear? They had a little interview, and, and Mike said, and I like Mike. He said, man, if there's one thing I could go back and do over, it would be not biting his ear off. And he told him that. He felt, felt terrible about that. And I thought, but we all have had those moments. That's all of us. That's all of us. And the reason we answered the way we did or should, if we're honest, is because we all have an intrinsic, inherent bentness towards sin. All of us. And when we actually take a moment to stop blame shifting and stop blaming and excusing, we begin to feel the weight of the guilty conscience, right? Which is, I suspect, the reason why we like to blame shift so much. It kind of keeps at bay the guilt that we're, we're trying to fight off. Verse 10, he talks about guilt. But this guilty feeling, well, this guilt is not just a guilty feeling. Because we can be very narcissistic. I feel so guilty. Okay, but start here. You actually are guilty. So guilt ultimately is not a feeling because some people don't feel guilty, but they are guilty. Guilt is ultimately a standing of a sinner before a holy God. The wages of sin is death. God has pure eyes, the writer Habakkuk said, the prophet Habakkuk said, to look upon evil, nor can he tolerate evil. Colin Smith has a great illustration. If you get an offender bender, somebody going to pay for the damage and cost of that fender, right? That's why the insurance companies wrangle like they do. You might say, well, I just don't even get it fixed. Well, same thing with a lot of my cars. We have unfixed fender bender stuff. But there'll be no unfixed fender benders in God's universe. In other words, the damage and cost of sin will not go unpaid, will not go undealt with. And you're fooling yourself if you think it is. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins, Ezekiel 18.22, it shall die. Now that then brings us, third of all, to a primary explanation. We've made an appalling observation. We've noted an unremarkable appearance. We've looked at our own undeniable guilt. Now, fourth of all, a primary explanation. Here, here's what I mean. If someone were to ask you, hey, what's the primary meaning of the cross? If someone were to ask you, what happened at the cross? What would you say? Now, there's lots of views about this thing, lots of models of the atonement, views. Man, Sunday school, last, uh, a few weeks ago, we had a couple of sessions just on views of the atonement, excellent teaching. There's a lot of answers, some good, some bad, but there is only one primary or ultimate answer. And I'm going to give you just a little bit of a fancy term right here. It's actually three-word expression, P-S-A. Someone says, what is the meaning of the cross? You can even, you, can, you don't have to say it like this, but so you understand what it is, let me give it to you. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. What do we mean by penal? A price had to be paid. A punishment had to be meted out. What do we mean by substitutionary? One stood in the place of another. Like in a soccer game, someone comes out, a substitute goes in in place for that person. What do we mean by atonement? A sacrifice was the, the means of payment. So when we mean penal substitutionary atonement, what we mean is Jesus was paying for our sin in our place by his sacrifice. I want to show you how, you probably have already seen it. 
Tommy texted me a couple months ago, hey, is Isaiah 53 about the work of Christ? I said, bingo, you got it, brother. That's exactly it. Now, let me, let me, look, let me show it to you. Verse 5. Look at these prepositions. But he was pierced for what? For our transgressions. He pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, his wounds, we are, we are healed. Do you not see the substitutionary language right there? The penal language right there? The sacrificial language? Now, Jewish people, you go back up to the latter part of verse 4, they rejected Jesus. Why did they reject Jesus? Ultimately, they didn't like his claims to be deity. And thus, not believing the truth, they bought into a lie and they said this. The reason they rejected Jesus is because they thought if anybody's going to be treated like that, there's no way he could have favor with God. It must be God striking him. Look at the latter part of verse 4. Yet we esteemed him stricken or struck, smitten or struck by God and afflicted. Now, were they right or were they wrong? Were they right or were they wrong? Was it God striking Jesus? They were right, just not in the way they thought. Oh, yes, he was struck by God in our place. But not for his sins. He was sinless. But for our sins, because we are sinful. The sinless one stood in the place of sinful ones where the Father crushed him in our place. Now, there are people who reject this, though this is Scripture's plain, primary explanation for the crucifixion of Christ. I want to show you that even more clearly. Verse 5, again. He was crushed for our iniquities. Do you see that? He was crushed, right? To which somebody says, this is what people say, who deny this view. They'll say, oh yeah, he was crushed, but he wasn't crushed by God. Okay, go to verse 6b. And the Lord laid on him, what? The iniquity of us all, to which somebody says, oh, okay, I agree with that. God put our sin on him, okay? You can't wiggle out of this one. Drop your eyes on verse 10. It says it's so crystal clear. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who's doing the crushing there? The Lord is doing the crushing. Frederick Leahy, in that little devotional book I mentioned last week, said this. Many hands were raised against Christ, from human to, de to de demonic. But Christ knew that there was one hand above all that smote him, and that as he bore our sins, that hand did not spare him. Now, friends, we're, just a few more minutes, because I want us here, I want us here, spirit allowing, to enter deeper into the mystery of the cross. We, 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 are, on, we are on hallowed ground here. You think about it. If you read through the gospel accounts, what happened to the light of the day when Jesus was crucified? Do you guys remember that? It turned dark. Like, during the day, sun shining, during the brightest part of the day, sun at its top, midday. That light suddenly melted into Darkness as he's hanging on the cross. And, and with that sudden infusion of darkness, no doubt, I don't think it takes much imagination to, to, to assert this, that all the jeering, you know, that we read about in the Gospels, and all the mocking, and all the talk, the coarse talk by the soldiers and everyone around the cross, boom, sna snapped into instantaneous silence as it became unnaturally dark. And pretty soon, all you could hear was the occasional splatter of a drop of blood hitting that Palestinian earth, either from Jesus or the criminals hung around him. And all you could hear was the crunch of the soldiers' feet as they walked around and provided security. And then there was something that pierced the silence. One of the brothers will be talking about this in our Good Friday service this coming Friday. Matthew 27, 46. 
Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, Sabachthani, which is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I say to you, now that, those, that's the oceans right there. That's when the real suffering went down, brothers and sisters. When he poured out on Jesus the wrath that we deserve. Did Jesus go to hell? Do you believe? No. But I tell you, hell came to Jesus. Hell came to Jesus on that cross. He was separated from the Father on that cross and in his death so that you don't have to be separated from the Father forever. At Bethlehem, night was turned into day as the light of the world was born and glory shone round about the shepherds. But at Calvary, at Golgotha, at the cross, at the place of the crucifixion, day was turned into night as he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. At the Passover, one of the plagues, darkness enveloped the creation. You remember that? And here, the ultimate pastor of Passover, darkness enveloped the creator being hung there as our redeemer. This is the mystery of the cross. On that cross, Jesus cried out for mercy, but there was no mercy that you might cry out to him and indeed receive mercy. Andrew Smith said, the father never stopped loving the son, but the father poured out his wrath on his son because he never stopped loving his children from before the foundation of the world. And that's why Paul would later say, who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that? Can you say that? Can you say that? Can you say that? That he loved me and he gave himself for me. You realize your eternity hangs on what you do with Jesus. You realize that? I think about that when, when, when I'm hanging out with my buddies on the ball team or the gym or whatever. Like, how, how can I get this truth to them, you know? Your eternity literally hangs out on what you do with Jesus. It's, it's really clear. You reject Jesus, it's hell. You receive Jesus, it's heaven. The only way. That's why the crucifixion is the most important event in human history. Why would he, ugh, why? Why? Jesus rose from the dead. And the last thing he said before going to glory is that we should take this good news to other people. Did he not? And that's what I'm doing with, with you right now. You need to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, the only one sufficient to save you from your sin. This is the ultimate explanation. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now I close with the fifth point real quickly. There is a glorious declaration because maybe you're here for the first time. You're receiving Christ right now. And we need to be reminded of what that meant if we have. A glorious declaration. Here's the declaration. It's found in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. See, when you trust Christ, you are accounted as righteous. It's, it's, it's a mathematic term. It's a computing term. It's even a legal ramification. God declares you righteous, not because of your righteousness, you're unrighteous, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his perfect death. His perfect life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection. Count it as yours. And I love this little expression in Romans 5.5. 5, God justifies the ungodly by faith. If you're ungodly and you can own it, you can be saved. You can be justified. That's great news. The glorious doctrine of justification. One other word here. The word many. Notice how it says it doesn't say Everyone will be accounted righteous, but make many to be accounted righteous. I want to real quickly dive into, unfortunately, a controversial doctrine, but I think it's actually really comforting. It's biblical. 
It's a doctrine of, of limited atonement, of particular redemption. Simply this. Jesus Christ gave his life for his people, the elect. And not one of them is going to be lost. Not one of them. Because he didn't die just to make people potentially savable. He actually purchased the people to save them on the cross. That's why the angel said to Joseph, you should name his Jesus, Matthew 121, for he shall save his people from their sins. So I think this is really comforting. Well, some of you I know because you talk to me. You, have I really laid hold of Christ? Have I really laid hold of Christ? Have I, and some people need to wonder if they've really laid hold of Christ because they have, their life doesn't show any Christ in it. But these are people whose lives really show Christ. And they're like, did I really believe? And I just want to say to you, brother, I just want to say to you, sister, you never would be concerned about laying hold of Christ if he hadn't first laid hold of you and said before the ages begin, you will be mine. The lamb will have the full reward of his suffering. So let's go get them. That's what evangelism is all about. He will save the people. Let's go get them. Now, I understand you may not understand doctrine of justification by faith, certainly election, and that's okay. And here, I really do close. My question is, are you looking to Jesus alone? That's, that's my question. Alistair Begg is a really humorous, powerful illustration. <coughs> he uses some, <coughs> you'll hear it, sanctified imagination to flesh out this illustration, but it's based on the fact that Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross between two thieves, right? Remember that? Remember what one of the thieves said to him? If you really are the Christ, show it, prove it, come down from this cross, save yourself, and save us, and then we'll believe. That's basically what he said. Remember that? What does the other thief say? You're a fool, man. Don't you fear God? We are on this cross, crosses because we deserve it, but this man has done nothing wrong. Do you remember that? And you remember Jesus turns to him and he says to him, what? What does he say to him? Today... You will be with me in paradise. That's great news right there. Now, here's where he uses a little sanctified imagination. And I'm going to add my own. He dies. Boom. Shows up at the pearly gates. And he goes to get checked in by an angel. Angel reaches out and says, welcome. So glad to have you here. Just a mere formality. i got to ask you a few questions. Pulls out a clipboard. Would you describe to me the doctrine of justification? And the, you got, what? The, oh, never mind. Uh, go to the next one. Are you sanctified? Am I sanctified? What? The guy says. All right. Do you understand the doctrine of election? I was nailed to a cross. I never went to no vote, uh, voting booth. I couldn't vote. I'm not talking about that kind of, oh, no. Okay, for crying out loud. Were you ever in a home Bible study? No, I was on a cross. Were you ever baptized? I know what that is, and no, for the umpteen time, I couldn't, I was on a cross. Well, I'm sorry, sir, you can't come in. No, no, no. I know I can come in. Go get a supervisor. Well, the angel go get, goes and gets a higher-ups angel. Pulls out the same clipboard, goes through the same questions and some more. And he's just so exasperated because the guy can't get it right. Finally, he says to the man, well, on what basis should I let you in? And his answer is, the man in the middle said I could come. It is through Jesus Christ alone. That's the teaching of Isaiah 53. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You can be the best preacher. You can be no more theology than anyone else. You can be a great dad in a sense, a great mom, husband, wife, advocate, servant, justice warrior, any number of things. Pro-life advocate. Keep on going. 
If you've never turned from your sin and put your whole hope in Christ, you are as lost as the person down on the corner. But I want to tell you, his blood flows in the direction of all who know they need to be washed in the blood. It flows to the prostitute, and it flows to the power broker, and anyone knows they need salvation. So is Jesus Christ your only hope? Amen. That old book from 1853 has this great quote. I wonder how many people through the, through the decades have read this, this, this little line. He says, the doctrine of the cross is madness to the unregenerate, to the lost. But millions of renewed hearts will burst forth in eternity with the cry of Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom I've been crucified unto the world and the world unto me. Is that your cry? Because if that's your cry, it's owing to the fact that Jesus Christ is your suffering, crucified Savior. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take this word of Isaiah 53 to save somebody who's lost here today. It's your word, Lord. Your word is the power. Your spirit is the power. Nothing else, no one else. No techniques, no strategies, just you. And Lord, I pray you would not let that heart stop thumping and beating so loudly until it finally collapses at the foot of the cross. And I pray for others. All of us, Lord, we, we forget the strength. And we live like paupers and orphans, not knowing what it means to be ransomed by your blood. So I pray as we turn to the Lord's table, something deeper of the gospel would land in our hearts so that we would be filled with awe, awe and wonder and gratitude and thanksgiving for what Jesus did for us, certainly in his physical suffering, but most of all in his spiritual suffering. Separate it from you so we don't have to be. We thank you that he is alive, our living head. And Jesus, uh, just as you did with the churches of Revelation, you walked up and down the aisle. I pray you'd walk up and down the aisle right now and press on hearts for that people would make decisions and commitments out of your strength that you call them to do for their good and for your glory. Maybe even changing the trajectory of an eternity, certainly of lives today, by the decisions we make. In Christ's name, amen.